with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. I'm your host, Rez Krebs, and today we have the federal housing advocate. Uh, she's visiting Prince George for the first time. Um, I believe we've got Anne-Marie Uhl on the line. Is that how we say your name? Oh, and we don't have uh, we don't have audio here, Mr. Board Operator. How about now? Hi. Hi. Can you hear me now? Oh, good. We can hear yeah. you. Oh, good. Well, that that works well because you know in radio that's the only thing we've got. So, right. Um, my name is Marie Josie but you can call me Marie or MJ. <laughs> I was born in Quebec. I grew up in Alberta. I've been called lots of things. So Marie or MJ, Marie Josie, whatever works. It's all. I'm here. I'm here to work for, for the people in Canada. So, you know, whatever works for them. Well, let's start with that. Um, as the federal housing advocate, what's your mandate? My mandate is uh, to look at uh, systemic issues uh, related to the progressive realization of housing as a human right in Canada. And so, there's lots of mechanisms that I have in place. It's based on the National Housing Strategy Act that was came into effect. In 2019, uh, in 2017, the federal government came up with the National Housing Strategy, and then with that came uh, lots of commitment to spend money, realizing that there is a housing crisis, but then they created the Act, which is uh, really put into words and law, you know, that housing is a human right in Canada. And with that created the, the Office of the Federal Housing Advocate, the Federal Housing Advocate position, and then the National Housing Council. Um, and, um, you know, part of the role of the, the advocate is to um, take on uh, the re- internal review of systemic housing issues or refer some for a review panel to be formed with the National Housing Council. So we're about to, to, to launch both of those mechanisms in the fall. But we also need to hear from people across the country, and it is a vast country. Um, we want to hear about some systemic issues, but also some personal issues. Even though we can't uh, address personal issues because that's not our mandate, um, it helps us really do a good analysis of the overall information we receive to see what systemic issues are. I did most of my housing work in Ottawa and Ontario. I did that for the last you know, 19 years. But, you know, the country is vast, and there's areas that, you know, there's um, nuances and things that we might not be aware of. So we need to hear from you. We know that people are tired and that agencies are so overstretched. Um, but we, we still need to hear from you. And, and that rights-based housing um, to, to give a platform for people to be heard is, is part of that, right? It's the first time this has ever existed in Canada where people will be part of, you know, and brought into the conversation about claiming the rights around housing as a human right when we look at particular systemic issues and then identify more, engage, do research until we're ready to do a, a, a in-depth review of the issue itself. So right now, three of the priorities we're looking at and, and it's only the surface, it's only the beginning. Uh, I've been in my job for, for the past six months, and that's, you know, it's, a lot has happened, but we've been having to get these mechanisms in place, including the submission tool. But the three priorities we have lined up right now, which is really um, um, kind of framed my tour, um, is 
uh, financialization of housing, uh, indigenous housing, and of course encampments. So these are, there's a lot of overlap in all three topics. And where we started was in Victoria. And then last night we flew in and got in very late. So I didn't see anything other than the bear carving at your airport into Prince George. We're spending the day. We're going to be here a little bit tomorrow. And then we're going to fly to Vancouver. And, uh, you know, this is our first engagement. Uh, there were a lot of COVID restrictions. So we couldn't start getting uh, engaged with people directly. And, of course, there's... There's so much to talk about, so many people to meet, but we're really focusing especially on people we wouldn't be able to reach virtually. Right. So, um, you know, and that is the people on the ground. Excellent. And, that is and I assume therapy. people on the street as well. Oh, yeah. No, we have to speak to and we want to hear from people who are, who are living this. Because in the end, they're the ones who are the lived experts. They are experts. And they're the ones who've been let down. They're the ones who have slipped through the cracks, and they're the ones to tell us what and how. You know, it's not someone from an ivory tower um, who can do that. And there's so many nuances that are missed. So. Excellent. I, I understand you sent a letter to the city of Vancouver uh, on their handling of encampments. I was wondering if you have any plans to comment on how the city of Prince George has been handling encampments. I'm not sure if you're aware there was... Uh, illegal removal of an encampment that was actually the only uh, court-protected encampment in Canada last November? Well, um, I think there's a, there's a few things to clarify around my role. First of all, I'm not a commissioner, so I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a right to sue government, uh, and my role is independent, so I don't I don't uh, answer to government either. You know, it's, I make recommendations to the minister, um, the federal minister in charge of housing, but then I can make recommendations to to other levels of government. And that was really the tone of, I'm hoping that's how it was received to the mayor of Vancouver, which was that I was very concerned because the whole idea, uh, you know, the issue of encampments, that they exist at all, is, is a violation of human rights because this is people voting with their feet. You know, the uh, housing options or lack of housing options are not working for them, and they are choosing to, and it's not a choice. It's, it's not a good choice. It's a choice between a lot of horrible things, but to sleep rough. And, but on the other hand, they're organizing and they're finding community. What we found in Victoria when we visited some encampments is there's a lot of people that are looking out for each other. And in some of the places, you know, they work, uh, there's a lot of coexistence between the people that live directly next to the park, you know, and that there was a man that we met who, who swept every day the, the tennis court because he so badly wanted to show that he was worthy and that he wants to be part of his community and that he's not um, disposable, right? And, and yet he wasn't being paid to do that, but he, it was his way of finding a, you know, a way to have meaning and, and to be part of something. Then we saw a lot of local residents coming in, feeding, checking up on people, just providing support, uh, compassion, and, you know, there's a change in the language around how we um, talk about people living in encampments. First of all, they are residents. So we call them neighbors, you know, street neighbors or um, unhoused neighbors, you know, street families. So and they're people, it, right? I mean, this is, it sounds yeah. to me like this is the, the ultimate aim here of, of these stories is to humanize people who just happen to not have shelter. Um, I just have one last question for you. 
We do have municipal elections coming up. Uh, it's a, it's actually in about six weeks here in, uh-huh. in BC. Would you have, let's say, one recommendation for candidates to demonstrate that they are supportive of a move towards housing as a human right? What would be your recommendation for them? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> so many recommendations. First of all, I think make sure that they use the, the right to housing framework for every decision that they make around the question of housing. And that includes, you know, the progressive realization, which means that every resource and in a timely way needs to be aimed at providing housing and appropriate housing options for people who need it most. And that's their starting point. And that at every step, people are engaged, um, that, you know, uh, that people are right holders, that there is meaningful engagement, and that there is effective participation in finding solutions, and that, you know, that they really adhere to the definition of appropriate housing, which is security of tenure, affordability, culturally relevant, close to amenities, um, and, and safe and secure, and, you know, that, that really suits uh, their needs in terms of uh, beyond just you know, household size and, and four walls and a roof. It is uh, for Indigenous people, but for a lot of other people, too. It's a connection to place, and it is choice-based. So it doesn't mean that everyone is going to get a mansion with a yard. That's not at it at all. But it is about what meets their, their needs uh, in a meaningful way. And that's different from one group to another, whether it's for women or women with young children, LGBTQ, um, you know, a man, um, you know, who's, who's uh, hoping to get employment or, um, you, you know, um, just every, uh, well, and then, of course, culturally relevant and a connection to land, mostly for Indigenous people. Right, there's so not a one-size-fits-all solution here is what I hear you're saying. No, and yeah. they have to, even though, you know, um, governments, we got into this mess, you know, because over the last 40 years, there's three levels of government pointing finger at each other and saying, not us, not us, not us. Well, people are suffering. Everyone is suffering. And I have to say, everyone across the country, regardless of what socioeconomic um, position they find themselves in, you know, this crisis is, is affecting them because we're paying a ton in taxes, because we're, we're doing last-minute solutions, band-aid solutions, which are not effective with people who are suffering and, um, you know, our, our street family. But then also that, you know, money is not well spent and the cost of housing overall has gone up so much for everyone, whether it's a mortgage or a rental. And I was on a plane with someone on the way here yesterday who was just talking about how much rentals have gone up. And it's not just the brand new buildings that cost so much to build. It's right across the board. So what does that mean? So we need to stop the financialization of housing. We need to... Um, uh, because we're losing housing affordability a lot faster than we can build any housing that is going to come with subsidies or that is going to be considered affordable or will have some sort of grant attached to it. And so we need to stop the hemorrhaging. So it's not just, um, you know, a supply issue, but it is focusing on the right kind of supply. Fantastic. Three levels of government need to work together to find real solutions and stop saying it's not us, this is terrible, this is sad. 
Uh, I hope that that message comes through to uh, our candidates here in Prince George come October 15th. I really appreciate your time, Marie-José, and uh, I hope that you enjoy the rest of your stay in Prince George. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, from you at the end of your visit. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take good care, everyone. Thank you. Have a great day. That was the federal housing advocate, Marie-José Hull, and uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk a lot more local. We've got... Jen Rubidoux, who is the Manager of Communications and Engagement at the Prince George Public Library. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the program that we've got, but we're also going to talk some, about some of, the, some of the issues that we've been hearing in the news about the library, and they're quite related to some of the issues that Ms. Ull was just uh, mentioning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Um, so we were... Uh, recently, I think it was about six weeks ago, we saw some things coming out in the Prince George Citizen about safety of people who are working at the library. I just wanted to touch on that and, and ask you kind of what's going on on the inside. Like, what are you seeing, uh, for, for staff and for, for people who are coming to the library? Yeah, so I think what came out of um, some of those citizen articles, because there were four of them uh, within a very short period of time, um, was that Unfortunately, it wasn't portraying what not only our patrons are seeing, but also our staff. So what I, what I found kind of, I guess the silver lining of it all was it really opened up a lot of dialogue. And I had countless staff come up to me and say, you know, Jen, this isn't how we feel. Um, we do feel really safe here. I had one staff person who's, who's relatively new with us, um, been with us about six months or so, and they've worked in multiple locations within um, and variety of branches around the province. And they said they've never felt safer in a library um, than they do in ours. And so in no way are we discounting, like many businesses, not just in our downtown core, we are facing social challenges. Um, and, and this isn't unique to the downtown Prince George. This isn't unique then to the library. It's not even unique to BC or to Canada, as um, your last guest was talking about. This is um, a wider, larger social issue. And what's beautiful in it all, though, is that we have created a safe and welcoming space for all people. So our our goal is for, for all people to be able to come in and to experience not only our services, but it's one of the very last remaining places where people can come where they're not expected to spend a dollar. You know, there, there's no expectation that, or, or that they're going to get out soon. Um, you know, they can come hang out all day. Um, and so when we think about safety um, at the library, one of the things that I think is so important to think about and to talk about is that, you know, it's all behavioral based. And so we have a set of guidelines and policies and procedures that um, help keep not just our staff, but our patrons safe. And I don't care if you're in a three-piece suit, if you have negative behavior, there are going to be consequences to that, and you may be asked um, to leave for the day, or you may be asked to leave indefinitely. Um, and so depending on your what what happened, the incident itself, um, if you're a first-time uh, offender, if you will, um, but there's, you know, we work through that, and we also use compassion and care. And so one of the ways that we help is that 
it's supposed to be a safe space. And the amount of people that we have come through our facility every day that cause absolutely no issue and they just want a safe, warm or cool place to hang out. And are you saying you've got air conditioning? Cause I might be down there more delightful often. Air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> it is always at, uh, kept at the most delightful temperature of approximately 20 degrees. And so it's just nice. This sounds like you're actually <laughs> handling this really well. Uh, we do have to take a break, but I see that Jen's brought in some very colorful posters, and I'm excited to talk a little more about the programming that you've got happening at the library. So we'll be back after these messages. Thank you. Community Radio CFISFM needs your support. While our station is run predominantly by volunteers, money is always needed to keep the monthly bills paid as well as for the production of new local programming. Memberships, donations, corporate sponsorships, and advertisers all help to keep your local independent broadcaster functioning. For more information on how you can contribute to this vital part of the Prince George Media Mix, visit our website at cfisfm.ca or give us a call at 250-563-2347. Did you know that Books & Company has a bargain book sale every single month? That's right. Our bargain books become even more bargainy on the last Friday of the month. How bargainy? Three for the price of two bargainy. That means that if you buy two bargain books, you'll get a third of equal or lesser value for free. For more information, check out booksandcompany.ca, call us at 250-563-6637, or come see us at 1685 3rd Avenue. The Books & Company 3 for 2 sale. On the last Friday of each month, where bargain books get bargainier. Learn to love your smile again at Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of denture services, from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation. No referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Der Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building. Call 250-562-6638. Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today, a 30% chance of showers this afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm and wind becoming southwest 20, a high of 22 with a high UV index. Tonight, partly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm this evening, a southwest winds becoming light, a low of 8. For Saturday, sunny becoming a mix of sun and cloud with winds from the southwest at 20 in the afternoon, a high of 19. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back with After 9 here. We've got Jen Rubido, uh, Manager of Communications and Engagement at the PG Public Library. And I did want to ask you about these some of the programming that you've got running right now. I understand, I mean, hey, we're, we're back to being able to gather in person. Uh, some of these posters look really fun. What, like, can you give us a, an idea of some of the programs that the library is running? Yeah, so we've just finished up our summer programming, and so that was like a ton of fun. We had everything from like a cardboard armor fight where everybody made cardboard armor, and we had a giant water fight in the garden. Um, we I can't believe I missed it. It was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching. Um, and then, um, you know, we had our our summer reading program, our story times, our Lego. Um, and we had, uh, like some really cool kind of one-offs where you got to paint 
um, either the Mona Lisa was one day or the Starry Night the other. So it was like teens paint famous paintings, um, a beadwork session with an indigenous um, artist where they like did beading and painting of a leather bracelet. Anyway, so our programming is really versatile and all over the map. Um, we just finished that summer program series. And so now we are prepping and getting ourselves ready for the fall. Um, and so the majority of the fall stuff launches um, kind of around right, right around when school kicks back off. So I think uh, the first one is kind of around the September 7th. Um, is is the first program. And then we go back like full swing. Um, so there's, you know, that small pause and then we're, we're back at it. So um, one of the first things that we have in September that's on the 7th is really cool. So we're working in conjunction with the Weaving Words um, celebration. And so that's a, a week-long festival where people are encouraged to um, showcase Indigenous story um, whether that be through oral storytelling, written poetry, um, all this kind of, of communication style. But what we're doing is we're doing craft sessions with elders. And what you do is you make a project and then you actually get the supplies to take another one home to make again. So the first one that you make is actually going to be gifted on your behalf to one of the speakers or presenters or elders at this celebration, which is so cool because you get to make something that gets given as a gift. Like, how fun is that? Um, And then you get to take another one because, like, let's be honest, we're all going to want to make one, too, uh, for ourselves. And so the one day um, we're doing a, uh, a canoe and then the other one, it's like an orange shirt pin. Beautiful. Yeah, so super cool. So that's right on the 7th is the first session for that. And then it runs again on the 15th. Um, and people can find information for how to sign up for these on the website? Yeah, so some of these haven't launched yet. So they're they're so, this what you're seeing in front of you is so hot off the press, like literally printing it as <laughs> I was running out the door. Hands. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's that hot that some of these programs aren't on the website yet. Um, so... Um, but uh, they will be up within the next few days. So kind of by by mid next week, all of these fall programs uh, for September and October will be up. So we've got that crafting with el- elders on the 7th and on the 15th, which is super cool. And then we also go back to some of our fan favorites, if you will. So our our story time. So we've got Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday story times. And they happen at the Bob Harkins branch downtown, but also at the Nachaco. So Tuesdays is our Nachaco day. And uh, we have story time and baby time there, which is really cool. Um, another one, which I'm so excited for, is the Mid-Autumn Lantern Festival. So this is in conjunction with the Speak Right Academy. And so... Sherry Chai is coming in and she is going to lead us in how to make um, a bunny lantern. So it, it all has to do with the Mid-Autumn Festival. So we're going to make our own lantern. But then what's really cool is you get to have a taste of mooncake. Amazing. Yeah. And so like, what's so lovely that I just adore about our programming team and the partnerships we create is... Just to reiterate, everything at the library is free. So we talk about all of these programs. Not only is your admission into them free, but so is the material to do the craft or experience these things. So it is completely no barrier. Amazing. 
Yeah. And people forget that, right? Like they, I think that people are so used to having to pay for things. Yeah. Just forking it out constantly. And so. I have you know, a question. So, you know, these sound like amazing activities, great things for the whole family. Um, how, how have you been seeing changes at the library when it comes to, you know, the fact that everyone's always on their phones now? Kids are really hooked into video games. Is it harder to get people into the physical space and, and do these activities in real life? So I think... In some ways, the technology piece is actually a weird blessing because I think it also means that a lot of us are missing that human interaction. And with everything with COVID and being locked down, I think we all sat in our houses and realized that we love that human connection and experiencing things with other people. Um, and so our attendance and programming numbers have been through the roof. Wow. Now, I do think a lot of that has to do with the fact that our programs are super fun. Um, <laughs> like, I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I'm slightly biased, but, yeah. um, like, they're super fun. They're really engaging. And, like, our team, they're such incredible people. And so, and there's such a variety. So, you know, like Lego time, for example, that's a passive one where you come in, it, it's offered at both the Bob Harkins, but also at the Nachaco branch. And like this giant thing of Lego is just put out on the floor and you just come in and build Lego and you may build Lego and some people interact and want to be with people, but by themselves. So maybe they're not, you know, quite ready to, to have conversations, but other people might want to. And so what's wonderful is through interactions like that, people, people get that and they can make new friends and, um, make connections with people, which is so beautiful. And what's cool about that one is it's five to 18 year olds. So yeah, right. like, and I, I'm Are really adults like allowed to like participate? Right? Yeah. Like there should be, there is no limit. Like, you know, it's, it's, Lego, like Lego is so much fun. And so, you know, that's a really cool example of, and it's something that's passive. Um, one that we're doing that's also uh, coming up in September right off the bat is on September 10th, we're having a Living Works Safe Talk. So this is so important. So September is, or, or that week, I'm not, I don't quite quote me on that. It's suicide prevention week or month. And so we are working in conjunction with the crisis prevention intervention and information center. Sorry, that was a bit of a mouthful. And it's talking about, so they're, they're quite long programs because what you're going to learn is how to prevent suicide by recognizing signs, how to engage someone, connecting them to an interventional resource for further support. And there's going to be skilled supportive trainers there to guide you through that learning and also be a resource to support you. If you may be experiencing um, some of these things with people in your life wow. or possibly yourself even. And so, you know, that one is at the, the heart branch on September 10th from 1030 to 130. And then at the Bob Harkins branch on September 17th from one to four. And again, like the goal is for people to connect and find ways to have a better and more meaningful and more supportive life in 
every aspect. So whether that be through story time, crafting, um, suicide prevention, you know, Harry Potter days, we've got tens to teens programming, tabletop, ukulele, tai chi, like, all of this is under our roofs and it's all free and it's all barrier free, open to everyone. Man, this is really exciting stuff. I'm so happy that we're able to get back together after so long staying locked up in our houses. Me Thanks too. for coming in, Jen. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And I hope you have a great weekend. And uh, we'll be back after these messages with the Friday political panel. The Great Northwest Fiber Fest heads the Connaught Youth Center Sunday, September 11th from 10 to 3. It's the annual gathering of fiber lovers, artists, dyers, makers, creators, and vendors. All the things you need for your knitting, crocheting, weaving, and felting, plus vendors from across Canada's Great Northwest, along with classes and demos. Meet your fiber-loving friends. Check out greatnwfiberfest.ca for more information. The Great Northwest Fiber Fest, Sunday, September 11th from 10 to 3 at the Connaught Youth Center. See you there. BC Schizophrenia Society's annual general meeting is Saturday, October 15th. Save the date and take part to support the organization and its efforts to improve education and understanding of schizophrenia and psychosis across the province. Find out more about the Society's board through the board and staff link under About Us or become a member through the Make a Difference menu at bcss.org. The BC Schizophrenia Society AGM, Saturday, October 15th. A reason to hope, the means to cope. Feel the love this summer with Lennox. The Lennox Feel the Love program brings heating and cooling equipment to deserving families who need a helping hand. If you know a needy or deserving someone, tell their story and they could receive a new heating or cooling system this fall. For full details on the program or to nominate someone you know, visit feelthelove.com. Feel the love with Lennox and local dealer Polar Refrigeration. Air is life. Make it perfect. Nomination deadline is August 31st. Prince George RCMP is asking you to keep a watch out for 69-year-old Paul Philip Cop. Neighbors last saw Paul on July 18th. Mr. Cop is described as a Caucasian male, 5 foot 7, 170 pounds with green eyes, gray hair and a short mustache. Cop has multiple tattoos on both arms and was last seen wearing a gray-green vest and carrying a black backpack. If you have any information on Paul Cop's whereabouts, call the RCMP at 250-561-3300. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back with the Friday Political Panel. Today we've got Eric Allen, Art Betke, and Herb Martin. I wanted to start off this uh, today's discussion talking a little bit about a jubilee. It's debt forgiveness, if anyone missed that. It's not just about the Queen. Uh, and... Uh, Joe Biden is forgiving $10,000 of student debt for, I think, everyone who's got any amount of student uh, student loans federally in the United States, as well as another $10,000 if you were a recipient of a Pell Grant, whatever that is. You know, there's been a lot of uh, animosity towards this, interestingly enough, from folks, especially who, who have paid off their own student loans. Um you know, we don't have nearly the same level of student debt here in Canada, but I'm wondering if we should bring, be bringing something like this up north. Eric, what are you thinking about this? Bring it up north. Oh, north of the yeah. U.S. border. Yeah. I thought you meant up here. To Canada, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I did some checking into Canadian debt, student debt, and it's huge. Is it? Yeah, yeah. It's $18, $20 billion. And... Uh, <clears throat> A lot of it's not paid. You know, they, 
firstly, they got uh, after they graduate before they have to make a payment, and there's no interest or payments before you know until after they graduate, and then after that. I think it goes anywhere from 7 to 15 years before some of it's paid off. And then, in addition to that, if they get beyond that and they haven't paid anything, they uh, plead bankruptcy, write it off. So we actually put out a lot of money, uh, not as a program set up for that reason of writing off or anything, but but it ends up getting written off for a lot of people. So... And I think it just shows that these types of programs and things, they get away from us. And things just start going on, and we don't know what's happening. And 20 years later, you find out what's happening, and it costs you billions of dollars. Nobody talks about it. You know, I mean, how often do you hear somebody talking about student loans? Oh, it doesn't seem like when no. you're when you're in the program, yeah. oh, yeah, I'll take this 15 grand, this 20 grand here, and then, uh, you know, when I'm working, I'll be making all this money. It'll be so easy to pay off. I Really, it's. I think there's a lot of... And in the 1960s, there was none, right? Uh, basically, and now, of course, it's horrendous. So it's something that I guess we need to look at, but uh, it's, it's a bigger problem than that. Yeah. Art, do you agree with Eric? Do you think that we should be forgiving student loans? No, we shouldn't. You borrow the money, you pay it back. You know, nobody paid off my mortgage. I had to do that. Uh, I have one son who has a degree, and uh, he had student loans, and he paid them back. And, you know, we helped him out as much as we could. I have two other sons who have no degrees. They have no university education. They borrow nothing. Why should they be paying off their brother's loans? He makes more money than they do. So, you know, that's totally unfair. Uh, and a lot of the problem with the, uh, the the student debt in the United States is the courses that these people are taking. I mean, you take a, uh, uh, you get a degree in uh, Phoenician dance theory. You are not going to get a job that uh, qualifies you to do anything except ask, do you want fries with that? Uh, you know, that's where a lot of it is. You know, there's even, uh, you can even get a degree in the Beatles. What possible use is a degree in Beatles? Uh, you know, so th- that I is. I assume a, that's a music the, the degree or is it that, a music that, appreciation degree? Well, yeah, yeah, I appreciate music myself. I don't need a degree in that. So th- this is ridiculous. Besides which, I, there's some question whether Biden even has the power to uh, forgive these. Debts. Uh, some people say he doesn't, so I don't know what's happening. I mean, Herb, jump in here. Do you think that this is pointing towards something larger? I mean, should we be should we be thinking about maybe free tuition, considering that education is a, is socially important as a whole? Yeah. Look, uh, it's interesting that the uh, the overwhelming response, or negative response to this is in the states, is from Republican and from Christian fundamentalists. When uh, debt forgiveness is, uh, goes back as far as uh, the Bible, mm-hmm. I mean, it's in Leviticus. Um, part of the uh, Lord's Prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Um, uh, Jesus uh, declared from the prophet Isaiah, uh, and has appointed me to proclaim 
<clears throat> the favorable year of the Lord. As his first, centuries, uh, first century hearers knew, Jesus was referring to the debt forgiveness laid out in Leviticus 25, which prescribes a regular, regular social practice of clearing debts in order to correct for the accumulated injustice of an unequal distribution of resources in society. That idea does not come from Karl Marx, but from ancient scripture. So that's, I mean, you know, we have to start looking at our society now. And, you know, are we basically a Christian society anymore? If, if we uh, insist on, uh, you know, uh, uh, debt for, forgive or debt uh, repayment that um, uh, basically makes people either uh, have no social mobility or uh, undergo uh, bankruptcy, uh, what kind of what kind of Christians are we? Uh, I mean, the, I guess the question I've got then, okay, the point of debt forgiveness that you mentioned there is that it is supposed to clear out all the accumulated injustices that come from inequality. But you know, we're talking about ten grand here. Um, it doesn't well, seem to me that, that that's actually going to change much in terms of the larger structural issue. So the the Pell Grants, uh, uh, bring it up to $20,000 in the States, Pell Grants are given to those who come from a disadvantaged background. So for those people who have uh, are really, really poor, $20,000 is a huge deal, right? So, yes, it does make a difference. Especially and, when you have a degree in Beatles. Well, I think you know. There's, there's. Look, there's always uh, going to be needles or spruce. <laughs> <laughs> there's always going to be egregious examples on both sides. But for the vast majority of people, uh, uh, debt relief is uh, it's going to be a huge deal in their lives. And uh, yeah, it brings up the question: Is uh, what what kind of education are we providing, and uh, is it too expensive for most people? Good question. Well, it's going to be too expensive for the taxpayers if we open it up to everybody. <clears throat> Although, I wouldn't surprise me if we opened it up for everybody and didn't charge them to go to uh, university or college. They wouldn't get much more of an increase in the people that are going now. Right. Germany uh, has, uh, as far as I understand, Germany has full free education, including room and board. Yeah. But, you know, so what are you going to do? I mean, Germany is kind of a closed country where they kind of can look after everybody. It's not the same here. We, we can graduate all those people, but I, I fail to see how we're going to provide jobs for them, or what difference four or five more years of education is going to make if you're cleaning toilets at a pulp mill or something. I mean, that, I mean it speaks to the kind of gradu- uh, degree inflation, right? Now I need a master's degree in order to get a janitorial job. Yeah. Well, but Germany also offers free tuition for people in trade school. Right, and they actually have really a really different regimented way of thinking about the labor market. We got to take a break, and we'll be back after this. Recent interactions with young drivers have Prince George RCMP reminding new drivers to make safe choices behind the wheel. One incident had young occupants of a vehicle shooting paintballs at pedestrians, while another had an unlicensed youth driver fleeing from the police. Thankfully, no one was seriously injured from the incidents. RCMP assert that driving should be regarded as a privilege and urge local youth to make safe choices when in a vehicle as the driver or a passenger. 
The city of Prince George is offering a new grant for not-for-profit agencies to hire people who have lived in or are living in poverty. The new Peers Employment and Encouraging Resiliency Grant is a short-term project funded by the Union of BC Municipalities. The city is seeking applications from not-for-profit organizations that create barrier-free, safe, and inclusive employment. Full details are available through the Grants and Financial Assistance page under City Services at PrinceGeorge.ca. The city will be accepting applications until October 1st. Take part in the Great British Columbia Shakeout on October 20th. It's an annual opportunity to practice how to be safer during big earthquakes. Drop, cover, and hold on. The Shakeout has been organized to encourage you, your community, your school, or your organization to review and update emergency preparedness plans and supplies, and to secure your space in order to prevent damage and injuries. Get more information and register today by visiting shakeoutbc.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today, a 30% chance of showers this afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm and wind becoming southwest 20, a high of 22 with a high UV index. Tonight, partly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm this evening, a southwest winds becoming light, a low of 8. For Saturday, sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud with winds from the southwest at 20 in the afternoon, a high of 19. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. So I wanted to jump into uh, an update on the municipal election. We've got some some movement here. Uh, a lot of incumbents, a lot, a couple of these incumbents are stepping down. We know that the mayor is no longer running. Murray Kroos has also decided to step down. We've also got, I think it's Tim Bennett uh, coming in. Um, he's the... Uh, He's currently a school board trustee and also a, I think he's the board chair at, uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, we've got, uh, we know Kyle Sampson is running again. What, like with no incumbent for mayor and, uh, actually a couple of seats opening up on council, what do we see here? And do we have enough? I mean, I don't think that we've got any new announcements from women coming into this, uh, race, which is interesting. Uh, Bennett is indigenous himself, so we've got a little bit of representation there. Oh, Wesley Mitchell has also come in. Do we have any idea of like what these people are are representing and and uh, whether or not we're going to vote for them? Art? Uh, no, we're going to find that out over the period between now and the election. So it's just a matter of uh, watching the news and seeing what's happening. Um, I don't care what. They are. You know, I don't care if they're indigenous or not. I don't care if they're men or women. I care about uh, what, where they stand, uh, what their character is. Uh, and that is what I uh, base all my voting on. Uh, I, I could care less if it's women or men or whatever. So just let me know what you stand for, and that, that will be the basis of my vote. Herb, what have you heard? Well, I think this is, it's a little preliminary maybe yet to talk about it because I don't think the, uh, the deadline for nominations is the 9th of September. So I think there's going to be a whole bunch more people, you know, throwing their file right on the 9th. Yeah, Yeah, probably. So yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see who, who uh, comes in. I'm surprised that uh, more people aren't, uh, aren't stepping down from uh, city council, quite frankly. I mean, the last four years has been really an unmitigated disaster, uh, in my opinion anyway. And, um, uh, for the people hanging on, um, they have a lot of uh, a lot of chutzpah. Yeah, to I mean to stand up again and say, yeah, you know, I I I was there during the whole time when the uh, uh, the parking lot fiasco unfolded, and 
uh, and yet I still want to serve again. That's uh, that takes a lot of courage. Courage, or <laughs> not sure what, <laughs> Eric? What are you thinking here? Well, I think there's still going to be more people announcing, and <clears throat> and maybe more people that's not going to run. They just haven't got around to putting it out there. Or maybe they're going to try to weigh who's coming in and what are my odds. And there's a lot of mathematics and yeah. politics. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm sure but, they're all uh, doing math. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I you know. It, I was of the idea to throw them all out and start over, but really, when I think about that, that's not a good idea. But do we see, um, well, we always have the public service that is supposed yeah. to manage the transition, but do we think that we're going to get a, you know, incumbency is the number one predictor of electability, right? Like, that that's, you, the, I'll, everything else taken away, incumbency usually predicts whether you're going to get elected again. But, as Herb is saying, this unmitigated disaster the last four years may end up sweeping a lot of those incumbents out. Do we think that we're going to actually get a clean sweep? No, we're not. No. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, a lot of the uh, memory of, of uh, all those disastrous events has faded from the public consciousness. And, you know, I'm sure uh, there'll be some uh, effort made to uh, remind us of uh, how costly it was and... Uh, It'll be part of the campaign, but uh, for the most part, you know, well, that's that's in the past, and people have moved on, so they're really not that conscious of it. Right. The mayor of the American act as as our, you know, Jesus Christ take all the sins and yeah, <laughs> or lightning rod. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, people, uh, I think, have uh, better memories than are just giving them credit for uh, <laughs> when Mulroney uh, basically. Uh, uh, Precipitated the disaster that happened in the Conservative Party. They were reduced to how many seats? Three two. seats. Two. Two seats was it two? from majority. Wow. I thought it was eight. Anyway, yeah. yeah. And poor Kim Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, took one, yeah. but yeah. That, he, that wasn't in the past. He, you know, he was still embroiled in all the issues at that time. So with these council members, we seem to have moved past it. So. Well, a little no, different situation. I don't know. They're, they're now talking about a pro, new performing arts center. So, no, no. who's brought know. that up? Who's brought that up? <laughs> oh, I think that's been mentioned more than a couple times. Absolutely. No, they've changed that. So, I'm, I'm interested to see some of these actual um, uh, platforms come out because we've all we've heard is, "Hey, I'm in. I'm in it for the people of Prince George, and you know, taxpayers and the, and the standard stuff." Like. I really want to see what they are planning on doing. I honestly don't think that a lot of the people who are who are running understand what goes on in the city, and I really hope that there is enough, I guess, support for them going forward. I think I agree with you because I look at the issues facing the city, especially the homeless thing there and the downtown crime, and I'm thinking, oh, those poor people. How are they, you know, they're going to, be charged with doing something about this, and there's really nothing much they can do. So, yeah. oh, I It'd feel be a lot of gray hairs. Why, right? why would you want to run? <laughs> yeah, uh, but for those that do run, it's uh, you know they they have to be specific in in what they're running for and, and what their what you know what their platform is. Like we let them get away with it, election after election after election. You know we're going to have warm soup and. And a glass of milk, and that's it. You know, and then the, that's it till they get elected. Yeah. So there's lots of issues out there. Homelessness is certainly one of them, 
and uh, physical responsibility is another. That's a big one. That's the two big and, ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, maybe just not raising taxes for a while. And nobody wants to talk about wages because that's toxic. If you're trying to hold a line on wages, you just lost 2,000 votes. So, totally. Or more. Especially in this area you know, with yeah. the inflation, right? So that's where we're at with that. Uh, but I think that... What about people, us? What about what about us? What about our the citizens? What can we be doing in advance to express the expectations to these candidates? How you can vote. So last... What was the <laughs> voter turnout last election? Uh Pretty yeah, low. it was about thirty-one percent or something. So less less than one in, or just over one in four people. That was voted. terrible. Yeah, it was yeah. forty-eight thousand people pretty, didn't yeah, vote. Yeah, that's that's incredibly uh, abysmal. So uh, yeah, I mean, if uh, hopefully people remember what happened last four years and actually go and vote. So those of us who are engaged, maybe we can take a responsibility to try to get someone else to come along with us. That's, I mean, yeah. that's when you work in a political campaign, it's always about get out the vote. You know, it's like Herb said, you get out and vote, but what if it's mostly just incumbents? Uh, that are running? People will, might, you know, if, if they remember the fiasco of the past four years, might be somewhat discouraged from voting for the same people who were in there the last go-round, so... How do you, you know, what, they might be thinking, what's the point in voting? Well, I was reminded by our other host here, Eric Allen, that you do not have to choose eight. When you when you mark no. your ballot, you can choose one or none. we got to take a break. We'll be back after these messages. Mark your calendar on Thursday, November 3rd for Advocate Life and Education Services annual Celebrate Life Gala. Enjoy an amazing dinner and hear from special guest speaker Rebecca Hagen, one of today's youngest speakers on the issues of teen pregnancy, abortion, and abortion pill reversal. Check out the gala website, CelebrateLifeGala.ca, for more details and to get your tickets. Advocate Life's annual Celebrate Life Gala, Thursday, November 3rd from 7 to 9 at the Civic Center. Learn to build realistic plans for attracting diverse sources of revenue with Vantage Point's Raising the Right Revenue. This eight-session fund development lab is for executive directors and those responsible for the financial sustainability of their not-for-profit organization. Registration and full details are available through the All Labs link under training at thevantagepoint.ca. Raising the Right Revenue, a fun development lab. Thursday afternoons from 1 to 4 starting October 6th through thevantagepoint.ca. The Spruce City Lions Club has a Recycle for Site collection box at the Senior Resource Center. Drop off no longer used prescription and non-prescription glasses, sunglasses, and readers, even if they're broken. Donated glasses will be cleaned, categorized by prescription, and prepared for distribution to people in developing countries. Used hearing aids are also being accepted. The Spruce City Lions Club Recycle for Site collection box in the Senior Resource Center at the corner of 7th and Victoria. Vantage Point's Essentials for New Managers is back September 27th. Lori Dizel and Samantha Tangeter will offer insights into understanding yourself and your role, delegation and performance management, and supporting your team. Registration full details are available through the All Labs link under training at vantagepoint.ca. A program for new and aspiring nonprofit managers to strengthen their management skills. Essentials for New Managers. Three consecutive Tuesday evenings from 5.30 to 8.30 starting September 27th through the vantagepoint.ca. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. So this week, BC NDP leadership hopeful and very highly likely new leader of the provincial party, uh, David Eby, pitched 
involuntary care uh, as a way to handle the overdose crisis and was immediately uh, taken to task by people who work in addictions. This has been coming up a few times, uh, just I mean, around this table, but also informally, how to how to help people who may not want to help themselves. Do we have an opinion on uh, like what, what's what's your opinion here, Herb? Is there use in bringing people who who are who need help into a place involuntarily? Look, there's uh, ten ten thousand people dead from overdoses now in BC. And it's time to start trying something new. I mean, the, the only objection I've heard to uh, putting people into uh, involuntary uh, help, aid or help is that um, it might decrease their um, tolerance for drugs and increase uh, their, their chances of a fatal overdose later on. Well, I mean, their, their chances of a fatal overdose are rather high. If given the number of deaths already that, that have occurred. So let's, uh, let's see if we can't figure out some way to give people some sort of temporary care and maybe shift their priorities or, or perceptions somewhat, uh, because, uh, whatever is going on now is not working. Uh, Eric, I mean, we've got people who actually want to get treatment who are being turned away. Is this where we should be putting our, our, our money and our time is on the people who don't want treatment? Yeah, that's an issue. Uh, <clears throat> really, the uh, treatment of people with drug or alcohol problems is something over the years has really deteriorated from what it was, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's just unbelievable. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah, we're working on it, we're working on it. But really, I don't think it, I think it's kind of no, just a thin ice on the lake. Like you just, They're just moving fast enough they don't fall through, but they're not doing anything. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we have to come up with a model where people, I mean, we, how can we ask people with mental problems to make a decision? That's, that's one part of the problem. So then we do it, say, involuntarily, we'll make the decision for you. And we put them into an institution. Somehow we have to create an environment so that they, even in their mental state, can go in there on their own. And there's facilities for them to sort of live on their own with access to this other stuff within the same deal. And it might have to be two or three blocks big and all sorts of diversification and the rest of it and spend some money. And that way we don't get into this legal part of it. Uh, I think that is the idea behind the First yeah. Avenue, right? I kind of thought it was, too. Yeah. And I think that's the right way to go. The, the cost, no matter which way you go, is going to be horrendous. But it's either that or nothing. Hard. I mean, Eric makes a good point. This is about money. Whether you whether you're going voluntary or involuntary, you got to spend money on it. Well, you want your money to be effective, uh, and quite frankly, if people don't want to get off the drugs, it's a waste of money. Um, it doesn't work. Um, I, like I understand Eb's frustration and, and what he wants to do. You know, he wants to do something here. He, he was talking about people who have two and three overdoses in one day. Yeah, and like those people obviously do not want to get off. And uh, I figure uh, for those who do want to get off, it's hard enough getting off, uh, even if you want to. So the resources should be there for them. Uh, like I know. Uh, uh, extended family who are into the drug scene and the one was court ordered 
to go into rehab and did what was required by the courts and then right after that right back into drugs I know another fellow who put himself into rehab for a month and came out clean but one of the things when you come out of rehab you have to uh, get rid of all your old friends your yeah. old associates because yeah. they will get you right back into You're it stuck back yeah, yeah. And, and, and how hard is that right and he thought he was strong enough that he, that uh, he he could uh, still have friends because he he liked these guys uh, they played together in a band and so on and uh, within a month he was back 100% using so uh, what are you going to do to a street person uh, who doesn't want to get off put him in some kind of involuntary rehab and then where's he going to go when he comes out right back on the street right back in the same uh, milieu where he was so you know it's it's not effective uh, you know the money should be put to whatever works if we can find something that works and uh, if, if people are self-destructive really there's not that much we can do for them right I mean, that's... Go ahead, Herb. It's just good not to underestimate the effectiveness of rehab. I mean, the average uh, ex-opioid addict has been through rehab six times. Wow. I mean, I've heard that, you know, these month-long rehabs are so ineffective because your brain actually takes much longer to rewire itself when you're not using, right, to to get back into a more, I guess, stable... um, production and use of those those hormones that are in your brain that opio- opioids are basically replacing, right? Well, I've heard it's more psychological and physical addictions. Like, it took me six tries to quit smoking, so I can <laughs> well, there you understand. Go. Oh, well, th- hey, that's physical, actually. There are things yeah. that... that, that well, they say two weeks quitting smoking, it's the, the, the physical... It goes out. away. It's more yeah. psychological. Hey, I, I've tried to quit drinking coffee many times, and it's always impossible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what, to me, everything around this table is always comes down to what we're willing to spend money on. And at some point, we got to make choices then. So what are we willing to give up if we're going to start spending money on affordable housing and and care for this 10,000 people dead, right? Many more will die. How are we going to handle that? It's always money. Where, what are we going to cut to do to actually handle this thing? Well, look. I mean, the, the Portuguese uh, system seems to work. They've they've done it. Uh, they've had it going for over twenty years now. They basically look at it as a, a medical condition, and uh, they. I mean, it's it's something that we should look at. It's uh, it's not it's it's not simply um, uh, putting people in jail. It's not uh, it's not uh, making things illegal. It's uh, these people have a medical problem, and uh, they're given. Uh, temporary drugs to, to help them bridge over into uh, normal life, and it seems to have uh, been pretty effective. So, Actually, yeah, that, talk about money. That, that was thirty percent or something of the money that they were spending on their whole police budget was going towards addicts. Well, yeah, it was going towards policing drugs, and yeah. you take that money away, you put it into healthcare. All of a sudden, you got something happening. Exactly. I've heard they also tried something similar in Holland that did not work out so well. So, really. Well, once again, we uh, we do not have the answers, but we certainly had a great conversation. We really appreciate your time, folks, and have a great weekend. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. 
For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 FM.